just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Thomas Penn, who's first book, The Winter King, was a biography of Henry VII, which was hugely fated and won practically every prize going. His new book, a couple of years later, is called The Brothers York, an English Tragedy, which jumps back from the 16th to the 15th century. Thomas, to start with, can I just ask, why do you give it this provocative subtitle? Why is it an English tragedy? Well, Sam, firstly, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. An English tragedy, well... Firstly, of course, the reign of Richard III has tragic connotations. Shakespeare wrote the tragedy of Richard III, but it's much more than that, I think. What happens on the 22nd of August, 1485, when Richard III is beaten and killed by Henry Tudor, is the end of something. It's the end of this great house of Plantagenet. But more to the point, it's an epic act of self-destruction on the part of the House of York, on the part of these three brothers who I foreground in the book. And it's tragic in the classical sense because it needn't have happened. It needn't have happened, but it was inevitable as well. And why is that? In part because the House of York was an incredibly successful dynasty. Edward IV, the king who reigned from 1461 to 1483 with a brief hiatus in 1470-71, had everything that was needed, really, to hand on his dynasty. He had male children. He was very successful. He was very charismatic, virile, magnetic war leader. He was the kind of king that ticked all the boxes. But within two years of his death, the House of York had collapsed completely in on itself, and it was entirely responsible for its own destruction. So it seems to me that tragedy is very opposite. I mean, the... the Book deals with these three brothers, and they're Edward IV, as he becomes, George Duke of Clarence, and, of course, Richard III, as he becomes. It's a book that's sort of... Anyway, it's about the Wars of the Roses. It is. But you're slightly, you know, re-emphasizing... You know, we, we think the sort of popular idea of the Wars of the Roses is, you know, Red Rose, White mm. Rose, York versus Lancaster, and you're saying, actually... This is the story of the House of York, and that Lancaster's sort of, you know, kind of only in there at the edges. Is that right? I mean, is it a sort of rebalancing of... It's a rebalancing in a way. I wouldn't say that the, the House of Lancaster was only there at the edges, but I think, I think we've, we're very sceptical of the Tudor view of this period, and rightly so, because the dominant view of history, of Eng the English history of this period, comes to us from Tudor historians, from people like Moore and Virgil, through Holinshed and Hall, and to Shakespeare, who, of course, gives us the, the, the archetypal villain in, in Richard III. There's one thing I think that we do still take away from the Tudor view of, of English history, and that is that, as you rightly say, the Wars of the Roses was a straight fight between two warring houses who each were trying to gain the throne of England, and that the one, the Red Rose, Lancaster, Henry Tudor, prevailed over the White, 
and then the Tudors join the two roses together in the rose both red and white and on England goes into a into a bright new united future but you're right this wasn't really the case it was at the start in 1461 if, you take, if I take you back almost a quarter of a century before 1485 at the Battle of Towton, which, as we know, was arguably the biggest battle, the greatest, most bloody battle ever to have been fought on English soil. Contemporary chroniclers say there were some 28,000 people killed in this great battle in a blizzard on Palm Sunday. And it was indisputably a battle in which two sides faced off against each other. You had the great bulk of England's nobility there, fighting for the House of Lancaster against the House of York, led by Edward IV, the the young 18-year-old Edward IV. Now, what happens from then on in is that the war changes. The nature of the war changes. It mutates. The Yorkists are in power. They're on the throne. The Lancastrians are exiled. And slowly but surely, the conflict turns in on itself. It becomes less a case of two families at war with each other than one family at war with itself, and that is the House of York. Now, without that conflict, without that internecine conflict, driven by the slow burn of this slow burn disintegrating relationship between these three brothers, the House of Lancaster doesn't get a look in. What happens in 1470, almost a decade after Edward IV takes power, is that the House of Lancaster comes back, and Henry VI is reinstalled on the throne of England, the poor inane Henry VI, Edward flees into exile. But this Lancastrian victory, temporary as it turns out, is driven by Yorkists. It's driven by Edward IV's middle brother, George Duke of Clarence, and their incredibly influential older cousin, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker. Now, this, as I say, this is only a temporary hiatus because Edward comes back, vengeful, full of fury, six months later. He lays waste to the Lancastrian cause, eliminates all the key Lancastrian players, except one, as we know, at the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury. Warwick himself is killed. And the three brothers, Edward, Clarence and Richard, make up. Richard has fled with Edward into exile. He's been very loyal. But they all make up. And this is the great high point of, of the House of York, in a way. And it's symbolised by the, the sense of unity between these three brothers. They ride into London shoulder to shoulder at the head of their conquering army. And they're hailed by poets and chroniclers. But what happens from there on in is that, once again, these relationships curdle. These relationships between Edward Clarence and Richard curdle. They turn in on each other, and the House of York slowly disintegrates. So what I want to show, really, is that we must understand the Wars of the Roses as becoming a conflict within the House of York. And we see that at Bosworth, as I say, on the 22nd of August, 1485. This is less a battle between the White Rose and the Red as white on white, it's two factions of the House of York. It's Richard III's faction, then the reigning King of England, and the other faction, Yorkist faction, loyal to the memory of Edward IV, loyal to the memory of his sons, the two princes in the tower who are disappeared, presumed murdered. And what does that faction do? Without a leader, they turn to somebody quite different. They flee abroad and they choose, astonishingly, as their leader, a young Lancastrian fugitive with barely a claim to the throne and that man is Henry Tudor and that is a measure of how much these two sides of the House of York hate each other. The fact that a Yorkist faction would be prepared to flee abroad and and choose this man as its leader is 
a damning indictment of Richard III's reign. Yeah. I, I'd say whatever you describe it and the names you mention, throw me back, because I am, as will become, if it's not already clear, you know, complete historical ignoramus. But I spent a lot of time at school playing a board game called Kingmaker. Did you play Kingmaker? <laughs> I have played it. Not, know, for, not for a while, but, but I've played absolutely, it. Absolutely. You know, all of those, these characters. I mean, you, I remember if you were the Warden of the Cinque Ports, it was a very bad idea because you were constantly being summoned off to Calais. And you kind of, <laughs> but a lot of, you know, this is all in our kind of collective memory, isn't it? This, it is. This sort of, sort of thing. I mean, how difficult was it to sort of unpick the sort of Tudor historiography, to unpick the sort of received ideas? I mean, for instance... You know, as you say, you know, George Duke of Clarence meets his end. It wasn't Richard III who'd done it, and it wasn't Malmsey Wine. Well, it might have been Malmsey Wine. Malmsey but I, th- you have Greek, I think you said it's Greek sweet wine or something. Well, Malmsey, Malvasia. Oh, it is. It's right, the, right, right, right. the same thing, as we call it Malmsey. But yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting one, this. I think that... To t- I think we, ha- we, have to, we have to take... I think the Tudor... Stories are a good place to start, actually, when answering this question. We have to approach these histories, the likes of Polydor Virgil, this great Italian historian who came over in the first years of the 16th century, and he went around interviewing the people who'd been there, interviewing all the people who'd been involved, the key players in the Wars of the Roses. And his was an oral history. It was a history that, that, that was based on, as I said, the living recollections of people living at the time. Now, obviously, it goes without saying, histories like his were written under the Tudors. They were written under the aegis of Henry Tudor. They were commissioned. It was a commissioned. It was a history intended to be presented to Henry Tudor. So we have, as I say, to be, to be on alert when approaching these, these sources. But I think it's important to remember that all history is biased. All history is written from a standpoint all truths are relative, in a sense. And so, if we think about the way that we use these histories, we think, what, what were these people... These people knew Richard III. They knew what made him tick. They'd worked with him. They'd worked alongside him. Some of them have fought alongside him. So, of course, there's bias. But I think we have to roll with that bias, in a sense. And if we're prepared to do that then we can understand something of the mentality of what these people were trying to do when they were trying to destabilise and ultimately overthrow Richard III's reign. And I suppose the one advantage that we have over the people who were present at the time is that we know how it turned out. We know what they don't. We know that Henry won the Battle of Bosworth and ushered in over a century of Tudor rule. But people didn't know what was going to happen then. And I think that's a really important point for the historian to bear in mind. I think that we always have to try and be present in the moment. Now, it's a very hard thing to do. And in a way, it's also ahistorical because we, we self-evidently can't be. It's, it's the past is another country. But provided that we have that sense of contingency, that we know how, that we understand that so much was in play and we understand and we approach the primary sources in this spirit as well, then I think that we can gain a richer and more complex and, and perhaps new impression of the period. And how much do the uh, characters of these three men emerge through the primary sources? I mean, are you able to get a sense of what they were like? I mean, how does your sense of 
how they behaved, how they thought, kind of, you know, how do you arrive at that? Because presumably an awful lot of the sources are either, as you say, you know, Tudor chronicles or, you know, court documents and so on. We don't have diaries, you know, we don't have letters. Yeah. So much, you, know. you have some letters, but they're not from the main protagonists, or rather, they're not in typical letter form. You're right, the sources are extremely fragmentary, and we have... We have to beware the nature of those sources as well, because it's not just that the sources themselves are fragmentary, but they're very uneven. So you might get a kind of source for the start of the period, which then, for one reason or another, dries out as the period goes on. One good example, actually, is that that we have for Henry VII, who we think of as the characteristic miser king, very controlling, very scrutinising of government. We do possess his chamber books. These are the personal accounts that he signed. He would, he would read every page, and then we see his monogram at the bottom of each page. Now, that adds to our knowledge of Henry VII. That adds to our impression of him, as I say, of this very controlling king. We know that Edward IV had the same kind of setup, but we don't have his chamber books. So we think of... We perhaps don't quite think of him in the same way, even though he would have signed those documents in probably exactly the same way but these as I say it's it's a question of piecing together fragments a lot of the time and I think that you have to be very very wary of drawing psychological conclusions from documents but ultimately I believe that you can gain a sense of interiority through the way that these characters typically express themselves through their actions through the processes of government, through the language that they use in official documents, and even in informal documents as well, things like warrants, uh, which initiate action, government action. And these documents bear a lot of scrutiny. You can see them as texts as much as documents, so you can try and read them for for their texture. And ultimately, over a long period of time, this is how I find these characters begin, very excitingly, to emerge. And... um, it's a very rewarding process, but a very painstaking one. Yeah. Can you say what the relationship between the three brothers was? I mean, how... It seemed to me sort of very interesting inflection point around the time when finally, you know, it all goes wrong for Clarence mm. and he's whapped in the tower and, you know, accused yeah. of this, that and the other. Yeah. But you say the sort of moment where Edward kind of, he- you know, pronounces him guilty and then he sort of hesitates. Yeah. Is that is that politic or is that like do I really want to put my brother to death? Well, it's it's a beautiful moment actually historically that period between Clarence's conviction for treason and then Edward being pushed and astonishingly he is pushed. He's actually pushed by a depu- a parliamentary deputation led by the speaker who goes to the lords and basically says will you get on with murdering your own brother, please, carrying out this sentence. I mean, an astonishing situation. But I think the relationship between Edward and Clarence is is an absolutely fascinating one. And, you know, part of it goes to the heart of Edward's character. As I said earlier, we see him as this, this very charismatic, this very virile, this very certain leader. But at the heart of it, The heart of his personality is something that contemporaries identified, and you pick up hints of this in the written record. There's one wonderful moment when an an Italian ambassador refers to him as a tavern bush, 
A tavern bush is, a, is an insign swinging in the wind, so flip-flopping you might like. And this sense of Edward as, as indecisive, as somebody who, who can unaccountably take his eye off the ball to, to his great detriment. This happens in, in 1469, 1470, when he, he seems to go missing almost and d- just doesn't realise that a rebellion is being stoked against him by his older cousin and his, his own brother. And I think there is this kind of indecision and this somewhat narcissistic paranoia at the heart of Edward's character. And in part it's driven by his incredibly self-destructive behaviour because... He's kind of sybaritic as well, He's incredibly sybaritic and and there's this dark side to Edward's character. As I say, he's a narcissist, so he surrounds himself with people who tell him what he likes to hear and he's very... He can be very prickly about genuine constructive criticism, but also he's compulsive. So everything that he does is fuelled by this this drive that he has, this very excessive drive, whether it's fighting, which he does brilliantly, whether it's government, which he also does brilliantly from time to time, but also his binging. He's, he's an extraordinary stuffer and guzzler at table, and his doctors look on absolutely horrified. You know, in an age in which, in which medicine is all about keeping to the mean, Edward is all about pushing the boundaries and of course he's womanizing he's womanizing he's a great sexual predator as well and doctors and counselors really think this behavior is going to prove out very bad for him they 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 feel that it will affect the way he is he's only about 40 when he turns off he's only about 40 Yeah. yeah 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 and and quite clearly by this time he has really got it into his head by the time of clarence's death that is he has really got it into his head that that clarence is trying to destroy him and to destroy his family, which is, of course, his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville and his own children, and to put himself on the throne of England. And and really, Is he right? I think the truth lies somewhere in between, really. I think Clarence is equally paranoid. This is, there's this extraordinary quote in the indictment, Edward's indictment of Clarence, where he says that Clarence had talked about Edward, saying that he intends to consume him as a candle consumes in burning, which is a horribly inexorable image, sense that he's just trying to extinguish Clarence. And it's really six of one and half dozen of the other. I think by this point, as chroniclers say, there's this mutual loathing and paranoia. Clarence won't turn up at court because he thinks Edward's trying to poison him, so he won't eat any of his food, which is, of course, a grotesque discourtesy. At the same time, Edward believes his brother to be completely unreliable and so there's a sense that he's trying to squeeze his power bases in the Midlands and there are all these rumours floating around on the continent as well of Clarence trying to stir up trouble in Burgundy where the Duke of Burgundy has just died Clarence is there's Clarence is angling to marry his daughter now the Burgundian dukes have a claim to the throne of England you see where this is leading and then the personality of Louis XI the French king who is this fantastic, absurd, antic king. We know him as the Spider King, of course. And he just drops these little insinuations into the diplomatic correspondence, sense that Clarence is just just trying it on. We know something... You said there's no proof for that, but it kind of falls on fertile ground. Well, it's confirmation bias in a way. You know, Edward believes his brother is trying to trying to undermine his 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 rule, and all this just serves to confirm what he knows. Now, you mentioned Elizabeth Woodville. There is, if I'm reading you right, a sort of faint suggestion that the parliamentary deputation saying, get the hell on with it, <laughs> kill him. <laughs> you know, that she's got a bit of a push behind that 
herself that she's she's had enough of Clarence. Is that right? I... I think I think there is something in that. It's very hard to prove, but we have to go back almost a decade before that to 1469 when Clarence and Warwick are lead a rebellion, lead a popular rebellion, popular uprising against Edward. And there is a battle fought in Edgecote in the English Midlands, which Edward's forces are crushed and Edward's taken prisoner afterwards. Edward hasn't been at the battle. He's trying to, be, he's trying to work out what's going on and he's completely caught on the hop. But after that, after Edgecote, there is a hunting down of Edward's associates, chief among them, members of the Queen's family, the Woodville family, who were extremely close to him at the time. So the Queen's father, Richard Woodville Earl Rivers, is caught and killed. One of her brothers, John, is caught and killed. And there's a real sense that Clarence and Warwick are acting against the Yorkist establishment here. It's the Queen's family. It's not just the Queen's family. It's the entire establishment around the King and the Queen's family, people in favour. And there's a wonderful quote from a knight called Sir John Paston at the time, when Edward is released from prison. He comes back to court, takes up the reins of power again. And Clarence and Warwick patch things up with him. And Edward is extremely nice to them, superficially. He says, John Paston writes to his brother, he says he acts like they'd be his best friends. But then he says, the king's household men have other language. And I think it's this thing of the Yorkist establishment not forgetting what's happened in 1470, not forgetting what Clarence has done to them. Clarence, remember, has turfed his own brother off the throne. And he's never really he's never really back at the king's side after that, although he participates in, in the, the extraordinary bloodletting at Barnet and Tewkesbury and makes up with Edward, brotherly hugs, lots of, lots of family forgiveness going on. But they don't really like Clarence at all. And so you could say it was Woodville-led in a sense, but it's really the, it's the Queen's family, but it's all those around at the heart of power. And, and Edward has, it should be said as well, that in the preceding months, the months leading up to this trial and execution of Clarence, that Edward has done everything to arrange the council and to arrange Parliament to make sure that when that trial happens in Parliament, which is the highest court in the land, that he gets the result he wants. So I would say, yes, it is in part the Queen's family, but I think it's the Yorkist establishment yeah. as a whole closing ranks. And that includes Richard. Yeah, what sort of role do, do the women in here, in this story, have? Because, they're, I mean, certainly to start with, you know, Margaret of Anjou, to go back to, you know, mm-hmm. the useless Henry VI, <laughs> was obviously a tough cookie. And she was. Sicily equally has a kind of, mm-hmm. you know, strong role. I mean, were, was a lot of the running and a lot of the action made by the women? It was, it was. I think that's a, a very fair point. Certainly, the events leading up to Edward seizing the throne in 1461 feature Margaret as a key player within the Lancastrian cause. She's the, the central people force for the Lancastrians, and she is subsequently when the Lancastrians go into exile as well. It's her court that all the Lancastrian exiles flee to in eastern France. Similarly, Elizabeth Woodville is, a, is clearly an extraordinary force in Yorkist politics, and so is her mother, Jaquetta of Luxembourg. And it's a measure of how successful Elizabeth is in the 1460s that she and her extensive family, which come to court and subsequently get married off to prominent Yorkist courtiers, become, in effect, the new dispensation. They become the new family. There's a wonderful 
illumination in a, in a manuscript of the period showing this, showing really that Edward IV and Elizabeth and their progeny are going forward. They are the new dynasty. And of course, to those who maybe feel on the margins that that is not something that they can stomach lightly, then of course you have a si- the situation in 1483 after Richard III's usurpation and coronation, where the two main drivers are again Elizabeth Woodfill and a different Margaret, Margaret Beaufort, who is the mother of Henry Tudor, and, and the relationship between those two is absolutely instrumental in what follows. Yeah. Also, I was interested in how much the commons and trade interests, in, you know, that interests below the sort of, you know, high nobility, the politics, you know, sort of yeah, feudal yeah. politics. Mm-hmm. How much they're starting to come in in this period? I was thinking, you know, again, early in the book, you talk about the Cade Rebellion and the way in which the sort of, as you might call it, elite interests yeah. co-opt the idea of popular justice. That's right. For their own That's right. interests. I mean, are we seeing a shift from the very old, you know, yeah. central medieval feudal thing into something different? Well, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. In part, we have to think of the bigger context here, which is a a great demographic change that happens in the previous century with the Black Death. And the Black Death obviously decimates the population. And one result of this is that labour becomes much scarcer, with the result that, of course, labour then has more power. And you do see something of a shift in the 15th century where the middling sort if you like, the gentry, the, the, the merchant classes, minor landowners, not so much the, the peasants, as it were, but, but these people, you might call them the emerging middle classes. Of yeah. course, the middle classes are always emerging, as we know. But these people pay their taxes, and they're increasingly literate, and together they have more force in politics. Now, it's wrong to say that they have... It would be entirely wrong to say that they have a, a great driving force, but they do have some say. And they do view the idea of the relationship with government as being somehow reciprocal, that they pay their taxes and they ask government to do things for them, to, to govern properly. And they find that, that in, in the 1440s and 1450s in particular, that this just does not happen. And yes, the Yorkists in particular, Warwick the Kingmaker, have a sense of how this popular grievance can be exploited. And they do so very, very successfully, while all the time as well cultivating mercantile elites who feel that neither are the processes of Henry VI government serving them particularly well. There's a lot of insecurity, particularly around the coasts and the Channel and the North Sea, which are, of course, the great highways of commerce with, with, the, with Europe. And Henry VI's government simply isn't able to deal with this problem. So you have the merchants of London and Calais, which rely on these great seaways, saying, well, we need protection. We need the government to help. And the government can't. Is that one of the things that helps to... It is, very much, because exactly. Warwick, the kingmaker, is captain of Calais. He becomes captain of Calais, and he says, we'll see you straight. We will protect you. And one of the things he does, he's a great pirate Warwick. We can kind of think of him in some way as the precursor of people like Sir Francis Drake. He's a state-sanctioned pirate. I can't remember, is it Warwick who launches that fantastic preemptive raid on Zandwich? Exactly. Yeah. And Warwick is in many ways, he's, he's a 
something of a contradiction because on on land he's incredibly uncertain, or rather he's incredibly cautious. The French who work with him think he's a bit of a flake, to be honest, but get him on ship and he he seems to transform. He's incredibly bold. And in the late 1450s, he proves that he will take care of England's merchants basically by a sustained campaign of piracy. Incredibly vicious. And people love him for it. Absolutely love him for it. Becomes a hero. <sighs> I love the pirate. <laughs> um, how much does the the sort of rhetoric, again, which obviously was very much cemented in the Tudor period of the, the divine right of kings, the the idea, I mean, I'm just very interested when, when they're all basically trying to overthrow Henry VI because he's no effing good. <laughs> there's nevertheless all these factions are manoeuvring to get rid of his bad counsellors. It's always sort of loyalty to the king. And yeah. Henry, Henry's sort of passed back and forth like a football, isn't he? You know, he is. This one faction gets him and says, you know, hooray, your majesty, we love you, we, we're loyal to you, get rid of those other guys. And then somebody, you know, does that shift at all? I mean, in the course of this. Or is it always basically you're you're ostensibly loyal to the king, even while you're trying to more or less depose or usurp him? Well, you know, I think right up until the another civil war in the mid seventeenth century, this is always the refrain. You know, it's the great medieval refrain: "This God knoweth all, but the king doesn't." So, whenever people are protesting against bad government, whether it's through self interest, whether it's factional manoeuvring, or whether it's genuine call for reform and both of those things tend to mingle together as we as we know in this period what people tend to do is address the king and say it's your corrupt councillors if you can get rid of your corrupt councillors your majesty and of course install us in their place <laughs> then all will be well people never accuse the king and the institution of kingship itself because that is as you say divinely sanctioned it's divinely ordained and if you if you do that, then you are striking right at the head of the body politic. And of course, the political structure in this period was seen as a body with the king at its head. And you can't really challenge a king's right to rule unless, of course, they're seen as a usurper. And we mustn't forget that in this period, from 1399 to 1485, there are four usurpations. So you have this great contradiction where, on the one hand, monarchy is seen as untouchable. The idea of monarchy is seen as untouchable. But on the other hand, kings are being toppled left, right and centre. And this has the effect of bringing under strain the very idea of hereditary monarchy. So the sense that monarchy is something that, since time immemorial, that just rumbles on, serene, is, is tested to the hilt during this period. And it's one of the things that makes it so fascinating. And Edward IV... After 1471, when he's fought Barnet and Tewkesbury and finally extinguished the Lancastrian cause, as he thinks, he becomes a very different kind of king. He starts to become a king who's much more authoritarian, much more, not absolutist exactly, but much more terrifying. His word is law. And after this period of instability, he's determined to be a king who lays down the law and he will not brook popular insurrection, disobedience, this kind of thing. So he does try to restore the sense of authority and monarchy, and to some extent he succeeds. Yeah, once bitten. Exactly. Um, now, finally, we haven't talked much about him because he's, he's sort of towards the end of your, end of your story, <laughs> but he's the, he's the box office, Richard III. Indeed. What do you make of him? Is he, you know, he's not presumably the villain Shakespeare paints him as. How do you, how do you see him? He's not the villain Shakespeare presents him as. I think Richard is genuinely 
a tragic figure. Like his brothers, his older brothers, but even more so, he's a figure whose entire formation has been against the backdrop of extreme instability, a backdrop of, of incessant political conflict and great uncertainty. He's fled abroad with Clarence at the age of eight when the Lancastrians are bearing down on London. Their mother sends them into exile, so he knows what it's like. He's lost his father around the same period. He's known nothing but instability, literally. And so as he grows up, he's a character who, whose worldview is extremely black and white. It's very binary. And in response to this instability, he craves order and he craves certainty. He looks for it in books. He looks for it in law. He's extremely loyal to Edward. He, he is the brother who, when Clarence goes off reservation, he stays there. And Edward uses him as his enforcer. Richard is brutal. He lays down the law with absolutely uncompromising brutality. And this certainty and rigidity and inflexibility this kind of ideological certainty you might say is extremely good when it comes to being able the fourth right hand man but as king less so because in my view he he usurps the throne believing that he can be an ideal king he's read all the books he's been his brother's right hand man he's proven himself to be a war hero in scotland fighting on campaigns in scotland he thinks he can do it genuinely believes that he can bring peace, he can bring unity, he can impose the rule of law, he can be a generous, compassionate king. He's read about it in the books. So he comes to the throne and he tries to do all these things, but he, as I say, he lacks a kind of flexibility. He craves certainty. And on exposure to reality, these ideals start to disintegrate and crumble, and he doesn't deal with it at all well. So you could say he's the opposite of the Machiavellian Richard that we know from Shakespeare in a way, but no less flawed for all that. <laughs> Fair enough. Thomas Penn, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.